everyone. Welcome to episode 230 of Greater Than Code. I am Artemis Starr, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Shantae Thurman. Hey, everyone. And I have the great pleasure of introducing our guest of honor today, Corey Ponder. Welcome, Corey. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. If you don't mind, I'd love to read your bio so everyone knows who you are. Sounds great. Corey has over 10 years of work experience. He has had several roles across two industries and has also served in community organizations and nonprofits. At the core of each of these experiences is a passionate commitment to building community and developing people and programs. Corey most recently worked at Google, serving as a senior policy advisor, focused on privacy, advising product teams on best practices and approaches to inspire user trust. He also owns and manages his own business, Impact Strategies, a consulting firm, that helps organizations build inclusive communities by prioritizing empathy as a skill set. Corey serves on the boards of Innovators Box, a firm focused on creativity, and Youth Speaks, a nonprofit focused on youth arts and education. Great background, Corey. Did we forget anything <laughs> else? <laughs> I Well, I have to just because I am a lifetime SEC Southeastern Conference person that I have to shout out Vanderbilt University where I went for undergrad. And then also because I'm in California, I have to shout out University of California, Berkeley, where I uh, went for my master's in public policy. So those two things I would add. Those are great institutions for education. So good. Let's start off with the first question that we give everyone. And that is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Yes, I love this question. It gives me a chance to really nerd out. So I would say the first thing that comes up for me is empathy. When I think about empathy, I think about how superheroes oftentimes exhibit qualities around being empathetic that we might look at as healing abilities or the ability to regenerate themselves or regenerate others, the stamina, the fortitude, you know, last or, or survive in a space where there's a lot of things attacking them mentally and emotionally and, and able to like persevere in spite of all of that. So I would say empathy is definitely the superpower that I have. I think when I step into spaces, I'm always thinking about what can I do to make other people feel more welcome or feel more authentically themselves, which I feel like is the healing part. I feel like the regeneration piece is often me putting myself into positions where I don't necessarily like conflict or seek it out, but I definitely feel like I put myself into spaces where I'm like, I want to support you. And it might come at some risk to me, but I think I can bounce back from this. And then the stamina piece. I mean, none of this work showing up for others even is not just a one-time thing. And so the consistency piece, I think is something that I've really over time become more comfortable with just knowing that things might be protracted. People might need you for long periods of time and I'm here for it. So you kind of said a few things here that really, I think, demonstrate the skill set for somebody who's in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Mm -hmm. And I will bet that you probably didn't see that 10 years ago or whenever you started on this journey. So if you wouldn't mind, Mm -hmm. I'd love to know how you got to this space now. And I'll also add in before you answer that question that a lot of folks like BIPOC folks like us, right? We, Mm -hmm. we know what it's like to be othered. We know what it's like to be excluded. So I know like for myself, I'm in the DEI space, Mm -hmm. but I'm just really curious. And I did, peek at your background, but just for folks who who haven't or who don't have those quick fingers right now, they just want to hear your background. Walk us through how you got here. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I will, there are two inflection points. I think the first is I am a black man. And so I think that there are moments that I think about as a part of my growth as a black boy and feeling like I had to grow up very fast to be taken seriously in whatever space that I was interested in to see the world from a perspective of, hey, you really have to make sure that you're showing up and representing the person that you want to be because people will quickly ascribe something to you. Like I, I this was a conversation that was permeating all around me so that when I got to college, there was an inflection point. The first one where I remember I was like, I want to be a biologist and I, I might also go to medical school. And when I took lab for the first time, it was a moment where I realized like, oh man, like despite all of the things that I have done, all of the things that were within my control, I studied hard, I was getting great grades. I was just woefully unprepared for that space of even just being in a lab and doing a titration. I was like, what the heck is a titration? What is an Erlenmeyer flask? And I realized that in a lot of ways it was because I didn't have access to the resources or the conversations or nobody had even told me that that I could do those things. Like I wasn't seen as somebody that could do those things. And so it's like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think that I really started doubting in many ways from that moment, like who I could be, like what I felt like I needed to thrive in the spaces, what I felt like I was capable of in these spaces. And it took me throughout college. I mean, great relationships and friendships, but also investment and resources around me to really find that voice that said like, hey, actually, like, here's your story. Like, and you can, like, you're not this other narrative, this person that can't do it. And you're not a statistic in the sense of like, you know, a black man that is X as opposed to a successful black man. And so, that was the first inflection point for me. Then I think the second was just having been at this point, maybe like six or seven years working. I was at a moment at Facebook, actually, where there was an increased conversation around what does it mean to support Black lives? Why are people talking about Black Lives Matter? And in particular, during the 2015, 2016, I forget specifically when, but uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were two black men who uh, were killed by police officers in different instances in different cities and different places, but within the same week. And it was one of the first times that from a technology perspective, we were discussing this in like an international way because it had been captured on Facebook Live. And so there was this conversation around like, who are we as a part of this broader conversation? It was the second inflection point because it reminded me this like, man, I am a black man. So even as I've done all of these things, I've been in careers, I've had these jobs and these opportunities where I've done things that I can be proud of. I'm still walking into this space the next day after hearing these about these instances and really feeling like I'm carrying something that I don't know how to speak to. I don't know how I've never really talked to anybody about how it impacts the way that I am showing up in this space. And so from there, I just made the commitment where I said, I'm going to start trying to be more authentically myself. I'm going to start talking about all the parts of me that make me who I am. And I didn't have a plan for it. I just knew that I wanted to have those conversations. And so the interesting thing was I started having those conversations and people naturally, after I would talk to people, would say, well, what's next? What can I do to support you? And it really just made me think about the broader conversation around allyship, this broader conversation around like, what does it actually mean to show up for somebody? 
And then I realized retroactively that there have been many examples, not only in my life of people who have shown up for me, that now I can pinpoint and look at as like case studies, as like data points, but also that I have naturally gravitated to doing that because of what I said earlier about the superpower of empathy. It has been something that I had always valued, even if I didn't know what it was or what I was doing, what it meant. But it was really important for me to see other people's stories because I knew how important it was for people to see mine. And so those two inflection points really shaped like how I view diversity, equity, and inclusion and my role in the broader conversation. One, my own vulnerability with myself, but also two, like how valuable it is to have people hear your story and validate who you are and like your experience and how it's a part of a whole and how they see you. Would you mind yeah. sharing those stories? Like, you know, you mentioned being able to have this experience where you really understood what it meant to show up for someone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll give, I'll give two stories. I mean, one um, was actually when someone showed up for me and I remember it was my boss actually shortly after the conversations, or at least what I mentioned earlier about Flando Castillo and Alton Sterling. I just, it was having a really rough, it was a rough day. I mean, I was trying to show up business as usual. It was very much like, well, I have a job, I have meetings, I have to go. And my boss asked me, how are you doing? And it's a question you hear maybe a hundred times a day. And it's also a question that feels like a rhetorical. I mean, you're supposed to say good and keep it moving. And I said that, but, you know, she really stopped me, told me like, hey, I really I'm asking because I really want to know, like, can I have time? How are you doing? I think just in that simple moment of like making the space, creating an avenue for me to actually express like a real truth, it just made me feel like, wow, like you didn't have to listen to my story. You didn't have to consider that I was something more than this meeting I had to go to or that I was more than this deliverable or this project that I was working on. And you did. And that meeting was, I still even like years later, still think about it because it was just like, wow, that meeting didn't have to happen that way. But I felt like this wasn't just my burden to bear after that question or that conversation, the question that she asked in the conversation that followed. I think for me, showing up for others actually has been in this work. So working through impact strategies and thinking through like, how do you actually like show up as an ally? I've had a number of experiences, um, but in particular, there was one right around the the re, I would say the resurfacing of the Me Too movement and that uh, kind of conversation around uh, sexual harassment in the workplace, there was an event or a town hall or an opportunity where I had a chance to really show up. I initially, and this is also a part of like the failures piece, initially showed up to that very eagerly with the best of intentions and said, hey, I'm going to, what can I do to move this conversation forward? And along the way, I remember that realizing that, oh man, like I in all of my eagerness to show up to this, I actually have silenced or like not included the voices that were probably most important to actually have this conversation, you know, women in particular, but also just thinking about in general people who are uh, survivors or have been, you know, a victim of assault. And so it was one of those moments where I took on feedback from people 
some of my coworkers, colleagues, friends figured out a way to revamp the event, postpone the event so that I could do it the right way. Um, and then I remember in the aftermath of that, seeing like, okay, you know, I learned something through that process about myself and also the feedback that I received about the event afterwards was like, all right, this was a conversation where it really prompted people to think about a story that they hadn't thought about before. Like people who showed up to the event because I was helping organize it showed up and got something else out of it because I wasn't the only voice in the room. And so it was another moment where it's like, wow, this isn't necessarily my story, but I leaned in a little bit or leaned in a lot. And I would say in the beginning, learned a lot in the process about myself and even where my blind spots were. But then that entire process of learning in some ways helped tell a story that other people realize like, oh, wow, like, thanks for helping me see this, this narrative. That is so helpful. I feel like the times where I've had to show up as an ally and lean into something that I didn't necessarily understand really helped me to better articulate the needs I had as a Black identifying mm-hmm. woman mm-hmm. or as a Latina woman to say, hey, friend of, you know, or colleague, you want to show up and help me? This is how you can help me. Because I've learned from my own ouch moments, like, oops, I shouldn't have done that. And thankfully, somebody was gracious enough to share feedback in that moment. But many times they're not. Do you have any uh, best practices in folk in terms of folks who want to show up, especially right now in this year, as an ally? They, they're very well intentioned, well meaning people, but they don't necessarily have somebody to like a an insider to give them kind of the the lay of the land or to tell them where the real pain points are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, two things. The first thing is that to your point about the feedback, I think feedback is so critical. And also we have to recognize that for many communities, like you said, we're the intersect, we are at the intersection of a lot of identities. So I rep- recognize that even though I am underrepresented as a black person in many spaces, I also am in a privileged position because I'm a man. So I'm having to constantly examine those different nuances and intersections of my identity. Yet that also helps me understand that there's a lot of emotional labor in just showing up to be black every day. So then sometimes I might not have the energy or might not have the capacity to give that feedback to somebody who is looking to be on their journey as an ally. So the first thing that I would say is showing up for others There's really there's got to be a hunger or a desire to actually grow and change. So this idea of a growth mindset and it has to be separate from, you know, passively taking on the information or the stories of others. And so then I think once you have that, like really sat down and said, like, I want to do this and I am motivated to do it. Then I think the second thing is to go back to the superhero uh, superpower question from earlier is I like to think about showing up for others as a trusted sidekick. So this model of thinking about you're not showing up to save the day because that's also a lot of, of labor, right? Expecting to be the person to like, in the the movie on a high note and be the person that like walks down the aisle to get a award or reward is not really the goal but what it really is about is really understanding the stories of the people that you're 
playing in the same universe with and then figuring out what ways you can augment their journey. And so I think about three things that are a part of that, which is really those everyday moments. So I think when I've had conversations through my work, oftentimes people are like Black Lives Matter. We need to march or like, you know, gender equity. We need to dismantle like capitalism. It's like that is probably true. And there are scholars out there that are speaking more deeply than I can ever speak to like on that. Like, But what about those moments that are like outside of that? So you might say that Black Lives Matter and you might have the T-shirt or you might, you know, step up in a form and say like, hey, I'm declaring that I believe in this cause. But are you then actually including your coworker who is black in the team lunches that happen every day that y'all just, you know, get together organically, but somehow that person is never on the organic chain? Or if you're thinking about gender equity and pay discrimination, like that is a big thing. But also, are you lit, like actually making space and not taking up the room when you're in a meeting every day, being the person that like has to get the last word? Or are you making sure that everybody's opinions around the table, including your women colleagues or female colleagues, are are heard in in the room? So I think these are the everyday moments where we can show up as an ally. I think the second piece is thinking about like these things that we have to confront about ourselves. It might be ugly or scary, but are necessary. So we all have biases. We all are a product of certain privileges because we have identities that confer some amount of power to us and some type of favoritism to us. And so if we're thinking about that, we have to really examine that, how those show up and affect us. Peggy McIntosh uh, wrote like in great the invisible knapsack, but she did a lot of research in this space where the idea is that we carry this around and it, even if we don't acknowledge it, it's still there. So this idea of it might be invisible to us, but you can imagine walking into a room with a big knapsack on, not realizing that every time you turn left or right, you're hitting somebody with your, your privilege. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that we have that backpack on, whether we realize it or not, and it's affecting people, whether we accept it or not. And then the third thing is, taking that next step of we have the positionality, right? So if you're talking about supporting from your identity or from your perspective, you have some ability to influence change. Again, even if it's at a micro level. So you're in because I'm a man, I have some privilege in the communities and spaces that I hold because I'm a man, people are going to see me a certain way. So then what I talk about, what I represent, what I say, what I'm willing to advocate for is going to hold a different weight, whether that's right or wrong, it's going to hold a different weight than if a woman were to ask or advocate for the same thing. So then what can I do to use that privilege and support of what that community might actually be asking for or want. And that might take a little discomfort on my part, but I guarantee it is way less uncomfortable than like underrepresented groups having to advocate for their right to be seen or heard or validated in spaces. So those would be three things that I think you could do in that journey. Those are awesome things. The one that really kind of resonates for me too is just the empathy part, right? Because I feel like that is a core skill that we're going to need for the future of work. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes when I say that, people ask me, well, how do I develop empathy? I have my own sort of answer there, but I'd love to hear yours. How do you think people can get better at, you know, working on that empathy muscle? And if you have anything that's worked for you personally, or that you recommend more kind of professionally that you've seen in the workplace? 
That'd be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Two things. The first thing that came up for me is the uh, Hamilton. I feel like everybody has seen it now. If you haven't seen it, I mean, spoiler alert, there's like a, a theme that goes throughout Hamilton where Aaron Burr says, like, talk less, listen more. And there's this idea that I feel like with empathy, we often think of it as just like, I have to be in touch with my feelings. But actually what I think it is, is like actually in a skill, like a tangible skill of like, can I actually like listen to someone? And I think there's a difference between being able to hear and being able to listen. And so I think the first thing that I have done is like, how can I actually actively listen more effectively to the people around me? There's actually this research, it was, I think, 2014, 2015, it was focused on can we use empathy, like actually like measure the effect of empathy on reducing, in this case, opinions like anti-transgender opinions. And I think the research was called Durably Reducing Transphobia. But essentially what they did was it was a it was an exercise around active listening. Um, they used a political tool called deep canvassing to essentially equip these researchers to go in to a home where people expressed or had been exposed to anti-transgender views and they literally just listened to them. They process actively with this person about why they believe what they believe. And then through that process, they didn't actually rebut with facts or say, but actually that's not true. Or did you know that that's actually not true? What actually happened was people realized through their own active processing that, you know what, it's not actually about transgender. It's actually about safety. And so I can relate now. I can empathize because now that I've come full circle and have been able to tell my story about why and process out loud, I realized that I do have something in common with the transgender community. They want to feel safe. This law makes them feel unsafe. I want to feel safe in bathrooms, but those two things don't have to compete with each other. Like we're all people that want to be safe. So I think that that is like that research for me really sticks out whenever I think of active listening. I think the second thing is I've talked a couple of times about storytelling. So, I mean, I think there's a a part of this for me that really is like really seeing people as like these amazing like figures in a story you just haven't read yet. And so I think when I practice empathy, it often is just me really taking an interest more deeply in like the why somebody does what they do as opposed to like the what they are doing. And this harkens back to Simon Sinek, who was like a leadership consultant or coach, but he had that phrase in a TED talk where he said, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And I think for me, that boils down to like the core of how I think about if you want to cultivate empathy as a muscle or a skill, it's really asking that question, like, why did they do that? And an actual tool that I often use in my work is something called empathy mapping, which is often used in um, UX design, actually, in tech to really think about like human centered approaches to product design. But it lays out all of these ways about like, how do you think they would feel? How do you think they would see this? How do you think they would hear or receive this message? And then it really gets you to ask this question about why would they react this way to what you are about to present or why would they react to these set of circumstances in a certain way? One of the things that you're kind of talking about here is the empathy mapping. I actually do this course or this workshop with some collaborators around designing for inclusion. And that is something Mm -hmm. that we really kind of focus on. 
have you seen that in practice well somewhere that you could kind of illustrate or kind of show, I guess we could provide, you know, an example or a case study so folks know what you're talking about? Yeah. So, yeah, one of the things that this makes me think of is uh, the Google Assistant space, which is also a space that I uh, spent some time in. But within Google's trust and safety team, and there was a focus on thinking about like digital assistants and whether they uh, had like an inclusive voice when it came to gender, because there's a lot of research now that exists about like voices and like people perceive assistants to be, you know, female, but because of the voices. And so companies are, are really doing a lot of that work now to think through what the implications are around that. But at the time, I remember in this work very early on, what I thought was interesting about this was just the steps that the trust and safety team went through to actually like figure out if there was an issue here because like you design a product the product is meant to like respond to queries but uh, essentially what they started finding was that maybe some of the queries that the digital assistant was getting were actually maybe more vulgar or maybe more like derogatory and so all right, how does that break down? Does that break down? Like, is it just objectively just that's how people talk to digital assistants? Well, no. And actually doing work and trying to reduce those offensive or shocking or risky experiences, what they found was that, okay, maybe this is actually offensive or derogatory and like on the Google Assistant voices that present or sound feminine. And so now that we have done this research, how can we actually address that in the broader product. And so I think the Google Assistant then did things to try to make the voices more gender neutral, to provide more options so that there were a range of voices, and then also not necessarily default to the feminine voice or not even call them feminine. I think they started calling them like voice one, voice two. So I think that that's one example that I know that I am aware of where when you're thinking about inclusion, it's like it could be an objective truth that you're here to provide an answer to a problem. But often that problem that you're solving might actually have many other sub problems within it that I think the idea of inclusive design is important. It's an important lens for everybody to have, honestly, on the product because there are a range of things that like that it might be happening that we're just not aware of. But certainly the power of doing like extensive UX research or or like a deep dive on some of those things, I think is what helps augment and like move us away from those types of snafus happening in, in, in our technologies. That was a beautiful example. Thank you. And I'm so, that sounds like a really cool project that you got to be a part of. Was there anything else that you learned from being on that project team that you can share? Yeah, well, I should say, you know, first off, this happened before I came into the team, but I think it was one of the things that I found very powerful about the team itself doing the work and also the like where they were centering people. I think that's one of the reasons why I've also been very interested in policy within tech, because it very much is about centering and advocating for best practices for people and defining what users actually are. But I think for me, like I think the, the lesson that I took from that just is just was again that we all really have to be our advocates for this type of work and this type of change in the product. And also 
that a lot of this is sometimes not as complicated as we make it out to be. I think that it's really about priorities and like what we value. And so what I appreciated about this team was just this idea of like, wow, like you actually value not just the objective user, but like the user in the sense of like when, what context would they use this or like, and how would this impact this community that we're trying to build this ecosystem? So, there's something you said earlier that really struck me um, when you were talking about this example with empathizing for these people that had been exposed to anti-transgender ideas and, mm-hmm. and sitting down and listening. And one thing that strikes me about that is just that, you know, as, as opposed to these people being a certain way, you frame things as these people were exposed to the certain kind of content mm-hmm. that then they had this fear that came up and resonant to something that they were exposed to. You know, I see those sorts of dynamics in other contexts. Would you mind elaborating a little more on that, on that thought? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that we are in not that 2020 or certainly the last four years since 2016 with uh, President Trump. I don't think that that is unique. I think that it feels exacerbated because on top of that, technology has been a lens through which we've seen almost like an exponential growth in access to information. And it may have outpaced the way in which we also keep up with like the ways in which you like are skeptically dissecting this information and analyzing it for truth and veracity. So I think that there's been like a confluence of forces that have made it so that things like misinformation and disinformation are like permeating and are easily like now it is easily accessible. I think one of the things that I think about a lot in this space as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and why I think empathy is so important is that I feel like it can become very easy to go down this path because we're always looking for ways to validate our own experiences. And so if there's one thing that we like an an easy way to do it that is harmful or damaging to others is to validate by saying that, well, it can't be that over there. Like I'm invalidating that to bolster like the way that I see the world or my experiences. Uh, what I really focus on from like my work and why I think the empathy piece has been so powerful is that it's a reminder as we move through that cycle of like, how can you be more empathetic that at the core of our human experience is this idea that we all do not like the feeling of being othered or unseen. And so even if for someone who feels like they are, whether you agree or disagree, um, with this idea, like I'm disaffected. Like, so I think the uh, disaffection cycle is a great example. A lot of people felt disaffected on both sides, right? Like you're, you're white middle class or you're black and in poverty or you're white and in poverty. And you have all these sects of people that are like, ah, nobody's listening to me. And that's reinforced because you're like, nobody has the experience that I have. And like, nobody knows what it's like to feel othered like this. But actually the reality is, regardless of whether you understand what it means to be like, you know, grow up white and poor or black and affluent or black and poor and white and affluent, you all have this common experience where you have been othered at some point, right? And so empathy says, 
at the core of that human experience is something we all should be able to understand. So we're not necessarily focusing on the what you went through so much as like, why did you have to go through it? And so I think that this disinformation, this misinformation feeds the, like, if we had more empathy, like, I think that would be the thing that would combat this because I think it would allow us to ask the right questions around like, okay, maybe this is true. Maybe this is not true. And if I don't have the tools to actually assess whether it's true or real, what I can say is that, like, I need to really think about the community that is centered in this story and understand, like, how this would make them feel if this were true. How does it make them feel if this were not true? Um, and I think that that's where empathy and, like, developing that as a skill could do a lot more work in this space where we're probably only going to see more, honestly, content or information where we have to vet where it comes from, whether it's real, who's saying it, and why they're saying it. Yeah, I was thinking about how how powerful it is just that even in listening to this context, as opposed to trying to correct it, what you did find was this commonality of, oh, we both have a desire to feel safe. Mm -hmm. It's part of yeah. the human experience. Yeah, and then, absolutely. Then with this disinformation, you've got this dynamic that really plays on fear. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of disinformation is associated with fear. It reminds me of this tech talk by Daryl Davis that I think, Shante, you're the one who actually had me listen to that. But, you know, specifically that ignorance breeds fear, breeds mm -hmm. hate. Mm -hmm. And that if, if we can go about empathizing and listening and, and building those connection, connections and tackling the ignorance, that it can have a chain reaction effect on all of these other things. Yeah. Yeah. This has made me randomly think of a song lyric by Nas, you know, street prophet that he is, but his song with, uh, Puff Daddy or P. Diddy or whoever he was calling himself at the time, he called hate me now. He said that line, people fear what they don't understand, hate what they can't conquer. I guess that's just the fury of man. And I was like, ah, oh, like it's just making me think about that. Because I think so often we are pushed into those lanes where the idea is to think that you have to like conquer something. So it's like your safety, your capacity to do what you want to do in this world is one by subjugating or by conquering something else, someone else. And that's the only way that it can happen. And then also that fear piece, right? If I don't understand it, then it's not safe. So if I can't wrap my head around it, then I need to assume the worst and, and fear it. And I think the, again, why empathy has been so powerful for me is one, because I think we don't often talk about it as something that we can actually cultivate. We often talk about, I think, in a, you either have it or you don't, or it's a natural gift or it isn't. And I think it actually is something that can be cultivated and brought to bear, like in that research, or it's like, yeah, this was a community. I think the first time I did it, it was in uh, it's like South Florida or maybe somewhere outside of Miami. I'm not actually sure the specific locale, but like, this community had been subjected to all sorts of messaging around like um, trans the transgender community because it was meant to drive a particular position or opinion on a bill around bathrooms and like whether bathrooms could be used by people of the multiple genders or like it had to have separate men and women bathrooms. And they were able to do through this research, they were able to find that not only were they able to shift people's perception around those issues, like so actually shift them positively in the direction of saying like, oh, actually, I do support like, you know, uh, transgender rights in this conversation, but that it, it was a statistically significant shift and it lasted for three months after that 
conversation when they did a check-in. So I think that it, it just really speaks to the, we don't have to fear what we don't understand. Like if you really just take the time to let people really work out their own narrative for themselves, they will often figure out that their own narrative is incongruent with how they actually are showing up in the space. And it's not about telling them like your narrative is off, like you're wrong. I mean, I think that there's value in that, but if you're going to make the real change over time, I think uh, in psychology, they call it active processing. There's like value in actually getting people to process their own, like whatever it is, whatever reason they have for fearing what they don't understand to process that out loud in a way where they can actually be like, I was heard. And now I realize that hearing myself is incongruent with how I actually like what I actually value. And so maybe coming to my own conclusions, I don't have to fear this, even though I don't understand all the parts of that experience. That was really helpful, Corey. And one of the thought bubbles that meant, well, one of the many that popped up as you were responding to Artie's question was like, how do we then, because it sounds like there's there's a lot of value, right? And kind of anticipating or using tech and policy for good in those moments. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, I know that you consult around this, right? So mm-hmm. what are, what maybe take us down that avenue, because I think we're at this place where we've seen coming off of this last election, the power of the mis and disinformation strategies and how we've partnered that with like, let's say the Cambridge Analytica situation, mm-hmm. right? Where they, where they use data to kind of underpin those fears and then really, you know, influence a community or a country to yeah. the space that they wanted them to be. How do we get ahead of that? What What are some things we can do or what are some things maybe you're working on that are worth mentioning here today? Yeah, so those are very, very good questions or good thoughts. I mean, I think that one thing that just thinking about, like even as you were saying with Cambridge Analytica, my first thought was just that we have existed, I think, in the technological space in this kind of information age uh, where empowering people online, I feel like, has been separate from, like, you know, the using the data or giving the data up in a way that or using the data or giving the data up. And so by that, I mean, essentially, like we're using these products and tools and have never really thought about them as a platform for change, except for or platform to see the world we want to see, except for these little blips or these moments where there are like revolutions around um, like, you know, Arab Spring, I think when that was kind of driven, I believe, on Facebook and then, you know, conversations again around Black Lives Matter because of like live video that we now have or were able to capture the experiences in real time. And so I think that the first thing that I would say is like, how can we actually educate people around being empowered online? Like, you know, you have a voice, but it's not just the voice to repeat what you have heard, but really to kind of lend your own voice, your own vulnerability, your own story to like what's happening in these forms. I think the second thing really is it, it comes down to the the companies. I think that a lot of my conversation is really when it comes to disinformation and misinformation really comes back to values. I think many companies, particularly ones that are kind of community focused and saying that our users are a part of an ecosystem, have to really ask themselves, well, what ecosystem are you actually trying to build? Because at a certain point, particularly if you are a private company, there are 
good ecosystems and there are destructive ecosystems. And so it can't be kind of a libertarian view of the technology is just a tool and it will all sort itself out. It actually has to be maybe more curated than that. And that might not have been the initial approach of technology. It certainly wasn't the approach of the World Wide Web either. When it first started out, it was just like, let's just, anybody could create a geosite. Anybody could do anything on the internet. But in some ways, I think that view of technology maybe has to change. It helps lends itself very well to innovation, but the challenge is that it creates a lot of loopholes for abuse. So then I think companies, as they start curating their experiences more, I think it has to be centered on like very clear community values. Like how, what is your ideal world and your ideal state that you want to be contributing to as a part of this broader conversation around information and like sharing data for the benefit of others. And most of these companies have that in their mission somewhere. They believe that they're doing uh, a public good, even if they're also profiting in the process. So if that's true, then what values get you there and keep you there? So I think that that's how the disinformation and misinformation is is allowed to persist because there's just questions that you have to ask around like, are some things allowable within this ecosystem? Um, are we willing to take a hard line on some things for the benefit of the greater good? And that's also acknowledging that it is hard. I mean, like, you know, being in technology, you know, it's like, even if you're 99% effective at something, if you have a billion users, that's still like uh, millions of people or millions of cases. And so, you have to then also acknowledge that like, yeah, there might never, it, you're always working and it never will be good enough, but you can try to close that gap and then be consistent on what you actually value and believe. And that at least shows a bit of sincerity over time around what you're trying to do. I appreciate your take on that. And one thing I might imagine to be true, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think from what I've seen is that like the tech policy space is not black enough it is not i don't see enough bipoc folks i don't know i don't see a, people really outside of cis able-bodied like mm -hmm. white guys in that space is there anything that you recommend in terms of trying to to change that so that you know mm -hmm. in the future where we're going to have for sure undoubtedly more mixed race people yeah you know uh, just given the trends that we're on how do we how do we address that or how do we kind of curate for that yeah. I mean, so much of it, it reminds me of the story I was telling about biology and, and going into labs. I think so much of it is about really understanding like the possibilities of what is actually out there and having someone tell you or like exposing you to what those possibilities are. Um, I think some of that is like pipeline development. So I think for many of these companies, right, and also just not even tech companies, but policy in general, right, this space is about how do you invest back in these communities knowing that it might pay dividends like 10 or 15 years down the road to have this more diverse ecosystem of like policy people or practitioners or technologists. And even if you're not developing them, particularly for a job today, but down the road. So, I mean, I think some of that is like pipeline investment and actually just telling people like at a young age, like, I see you, like, here's the, here's the three things you need to get started. And then the sky's the limit. 
you know, I know there are some programs around like coding that have taken off where people go into the community and do that. And it will be interesting to see how if we were to like look over time, like whether that's really changing the overall dynamics of like actual black engineers or, you know, BIPOC engineers or a diverse representation of engineers. But I think that that would be the same for uh, policy. And I think the other thing that I would say is that many companies it would seem that many companies in the uh, tech space in particular did not actually have to, whether they should have or shouldn't have, they didn't necessarily have to focus on like these types of questions for their like growth and success in the early stages. And so I think that that also meant that there just wasn't an investment in like the broader, like we need like a policy team. Maybe there were people there to focus on policy and ask these questions. But I think as we continue to see the growth and the impact of companies on just everything, like our economic systems, the way we behave and the way we think about different issues, now it is really important to think not just about whether building this product is going to net an additional 100,000 users, but will it at the expense of so many other things? Will it affect the political conversation happening in this country? Will it affect the access to resources in this place? And I think now we're seeing the investment in those communities and spaces, I think, for companies that are growing or building now, I think it's about really investing in that early and making sure you have the right team and the right representation of the team to address the issues that you could foresee being a challenge or being a space that your product will exist in. But I think policy is certainly one of, of many like professional spaces where you do see under representation really because of access um, or like knowledge about the opportunity. I'll just say, because this is a long, long way of saying like, but I want to end with a personal story where it's just like even for myself going into the technology space, I was always interested in policy, but really from the lens of how you can go directly into government as a civil servant and like try to, you know, push the machine or move through the bureaucracy to actually make effective rules or regulations that mattered or meant something to different communities. And I think government is still can still be that thing. There's a lot of challenges there, but it still can be that force. What I didn't realize was that this existed in the tech world, that these were conversations that were happening, that companies were having an influence on the way we legislate or the way we behave or the way we think about certain, like all sorts of issues that would quote unquote fit squarely in the policy world. And it was only through like my kind of exploration, but also connecting with people who had gone over to these companies, these spaces and the like the privilege that I had of being able to go to different institutions where I had access to people who could have these conversations with me where I realized like, hey, I could be in this space, but it was something that I didn't even realize was a thing and and would never have explored otherwise. And so I think that that also for me, like I, I recognizing that I had access to resources and tools that helped me even see it as a possibility. And so I think that has to be the thing that like we're invent that companies that people, anybody who has the privilege or capacity to do so should be investing in. I feel like yeah. there's some things that we could do in terms of new precedent setting that we could do as like a broader tech community that could drive, help drive change 
of adopting cultural practices within the context of organizations and everything that flows from there. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, one of the key threads you brought up was that, you know, it comes down to values and we had to start with having, you know, a clear set of things that we want to value as a community and build as organizations and build around, build around that. I start thinking back to, um, you know, you mentioned kind of early days of the internet when anybody could do anything and spin stuff up on the internet. And, you know, I think about some of the early tech interfaces and stuff we had, and I feel like there was a lot more community and curation type things too. Like we had like message boards Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think about like AOL days where, you know, you'd have like little chat rooms that you join and stuff that were kind of topic focused and, it seems like as opposed to being kind of these topic focused, finding each other kind of things by having similar shared interests, we've shifted to this follower type model where it's just about networking and connecting with the people and not necessarily being connected for any other purpose other than getting the most mm-hmm. followers. So the purpose becomes the network and then the identity stuff is associated with you know, how many followers you have and how many retweets you get. And, you know, like the the dynamics of how we've sort of framed identity kind of dynamics and communication dynamics in tech has shifted quite dramatically as tech has shifted in the internet. And then like the people seem to have kind of shifted like a, a mirror of the technology that we built. Mm. And so I'm thinking if we take a step back and start with what you're saying in terms of community values and what a reflection of that would look like technology wise like what if we started with a manifesto and and some some vision mm-hmm. even if it's rough vision of what that might look like mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts on if you were to write some of those things down what you would say yeah i mean this is making me and i don't know them off the top of my head but it's making me think of some of the ai ethics work that um you know several uh, artificial intelligence work that several people are working on right now i think of dr Ruh benjamin there was uh dr tendon gibberu i think of uh, a few other like contemporaries of them but there's actually like i think an ai justice league where i think that they are actually thinking of that like there's a manifesto of sorts or a thing that we should be believing in that like underpins the ethics that we should have as it relates to that technology so if i were to think of a couple of just a couple of things i mean the first would really be around the empowerment piece and i think we talked about i think i mentioned that before but like really that we're promoting people to feel not just that they can speak or be on like a platform or they can have access, but that they are empowered with their information, which in my mind, when I say empowered means that they can actually, it's like a call to action. Like they believe that they can do more of the thing that they want to do. And I think that is important because it did, I think it helps you actually center all, like it makes you actually have to question all the communities that are on the platform and what you want them to actually be able to be called to do. I think right now, not saying empowerment means that I feel like you're removed from the actual impact of what you are allowing to be shared or allowing to be said on the platform. I think the second is while there are, I mean, I think there are a lot of companies that 
would say they do this, I think it is important to call out safety and authenticity as maybe two and three. Like the idea is to really like root in vulnerability. The idea is really to root in like this idea of safety, psychological safety, but also physical, depending on whatever the product is. Because again, I think that those two things require you to then center the user and like actually really think about, well, what does it mean to actually build a safe community where like most of all people feel safe psychologically and while also being their truest, truest selves. So I think those would kind of be three values or the three areas where I feel like you would shape some type of principles around. But I also just wanted to say, I love your point because I do think that in some ways, the way in which we consume technology or consume information now has really centered on this viral nature. And so then I think in some ways, virality motivates the way that information is even like propagated. So whereas before, when you're talking about these interests, it may have really been like just genuinely about the interest and then it coalesced around that chat room. But now virality almost like because that is the name of the game in so many ways it almost requires like people who have figured out the model of how to make things viral as opposed to people who have figured out like something to say that is substantive or something to say that is you know empowering to a broader community like those two things are not always overlapping right and so you have people who wield influence and then systems that like reinforce that influence when the influence is not necessarily earned on the merits of actually being empowering or safe or authentic dialogue. And so I think you're absolutely spot on that like the way that we consume has has shifted to maybe wanting things to be viral and virality being almost like the barometer of like truth and value when that's not always the case. It makes me think that, you know, perhaps we've been focusing so much on the tech and the product space that we've nobody's I shouldn't say nobody, but we probably haven't focused enough on the actual consumer and making sure that we stand up, you know, resources or a hub Mm -hmm. to kind of inform them and make them smarter consumers. Because Mm -hmm. as we know, right, every click leads to a dollar or every like leads to something. So I think we reinforce the system unknowingly. Yeah, Uh, I can, I often feel this sort of, I don't know about you, but I've been watching Verses on Instagram. Are you familiar yes. with Versus? Yes, yes. <laughs> there have been Black. some good ones. There oh also have been some duds, but yes. Duds, I know. Um, don't get me started. But hashtag Black Twitter, right? So I'm like, oh, wow. So where I was like, I was getting excited and I was online early for the pandemic, but there was this part of me that just couldn't, I didn't want to get too attached or too into it because I was like, man, look, we're on somebody else's platform, right? Making them yeah. money. I know that there's some stuff being done to kind of shift that like where, and I see this a lot with black, with the black culture specifically. I feel like sometimes we're online and we're like making this tech space or like this product really dope and like nobody's there to protect us as consumers. And so I get really upset about that. And I just want so badly to make sure that the consumers are educated, that they are informed and understanding how how they should or shouldn't be using their social capital, how they should or shouldn't be supporting something that probably doesn't always have their best interest at heart, you know? Yeah. And I don't know, it's not like there's one or two of us who has to be responsible. There's like a whole, it's, it's everyone's job, you know? Mm-hmm. And so do you know of any like collectives or projects or are you a part of anything that is aiming to do that? 
Yeah. Again, a really, really, really good point um, that that really resonates uh, because I've had this. I'll just say before I answer the question, I've had that conversation around memes because I feel like memes are like such a way that we communicate now as a part of popular culture. But, you know, I don't have the tools necessarily to trace the lineage of the first meme. But I would bet, again, going back to the virality of memes, that there was something that was that was also infused with black youth culture in America that made memes popular and then made them more ubiquitous. And so this idea of making technology cool is because, yeah, there's a culture that is infused in like the, like, again, making it cool. So like it's a tool that then you have a community that just like, it feels empowered to do something a certain way, but then that empowerment is not protected. I would say that I have, you know, just in my experience in tech, I mean, I have seen companies that have made investments in this conversation on equity and well-being, where really the goal is to how do you work more closely with and partner with creators? How do you work more closely with users of the platform, either through research or actually through direct partnerships to understand how the tool is actually being used and like what are ways it would actually supplement the way in which they are using it today. I know in the very, very beginning stages of Twitter, I think that was one reason why Twitter took off was because Twitter was just, I think it might have started, was it? A hundred characters? I don't even know. Now it's way more. Maybe it started with 140 characters, but other than just kind of being that platform, like tweet 140 characters, everything else was community generated. RTs, the idea of having a retweet button, you know, these different features very early on were all things that had organically risen up from the community and they just listened. And so I think in many ways it, it was cool to see a product at that early stage just say like we've created a tool, but then we're just going to see how people use it and then build on top of that. And so I think that there's that works still happening like you know companies should continue to invest in it of course but really like listening to your creators and rather than saying like here's what we need you to fit we're going to start doing x doing more of like we're learning how you're using this either by talking to you directly or analyzing or examining it and really understanding what will matter to you and now we are augmenting that with this feature that we have listened to you and heard that you you need and then on the reverse side proactively thinking about these are the issues that people are citing that they have that make them feel unsafe make them feel like they can't actually have a voice on this platform and we are listening to that and we are actively going to address that even if it's not going to necessarily net us an additional dollar spent or an additional user earn. This is important because this is how this is preventing you from using the platform to the fullest. So I've seen some things since I have been in the space. I think many, much of it is going to have to be I think a continued investment. I can't think of like any one product or any one area where I feel like it's like really landed, but I also think that that speaks to the broader point, which is that it's a journey. And that as you continue to grow as companies, you're going to have more challenges, but also I see opportunities because you're bringing more communities and more people onto the platform. And so as you scale, that has to be a part of the conversation. It's not just going to be a monolithic uh, monolith or one trigger response to like a collective user, but actually many different types of users on your platform. No doubt. I've seen, um, there was, I'm trying to remember when it was specifically, it was probably three, four weeks ago when 
there's all this big announcement about Clubhouse, for example, mm. going, right? Mm-hmm. And people, people specifically felt some kind of way because here you had a situation where there was a bunch of black users who were kind of early on joining and you, you even had a black man who was like the representative of the icon. And people were like, wait a minute, we're not being like involved in this whole opportunity for more funding. And what does that mean for us? I just thought it was, I, I listened in that week to a bunch of conversations and folks were, you know, yeah. incensed. They felt left out. They felt overlooked, or, you know, kind of taken advantage of. I think we've seen some action spur out of that. But it just reminded me in that moment that we have a lot of power collectively as a community. But you have to have times and spaces where people can organize and communicate mm-hmm. that are not dependent upon somebody else's online community that mm-hmm. looks free, that looks free, but maybe it's not, you know? And yeah. I feel, my feeling is that like, it has to be a multi-stakeholder groups that are holding these technology companies and even the investor community accountable. But also at the same time, there's got to be people who are thinking about just consumer education and consumer engagement period, because we're only yeah. going to see more of this, not less of it. Yeah. Yes. On multiple points. I I think having worked in privacy for some time as well, doing policy work, that is something that comes up continually, right? Is that even as you build out more mechanisms to keep people's data safe, or you're like, hey, we actually are committed to the cause and this is all the work that we're going to do to protect your data, the number of choices become unwieldy if you don't also have an education around all the things that a company can do with your data, right? So then it almost feels insincere if all of these things are offered without the education or the continual reinforcement in different ways throughout the product or or the company's values. And then your point about Clubhouse, yeah, I actually, that, I, I remember reading that and I Agree. Again, it really speaks to what I was saying about the meme piece, where it's like there's something that becomes really, really cool and it helps the technology take off. And then it suddenly becomes ubiquitous in this different way. And it's like, whoa, wow, did we really think about the core experience, like how the core experience was shaped by a smaller community, but a very important one. But then the other thing that I think about with Clubhouse, but I think a lot of apps are guilty of this in the U.S. is also just from a tech equity perspective, like leaning into the iPhone development space in and of itself often I feel like creates its own barriers around like elitism and privilege, not because iPhone or Apple is, you know, uniquely trying to say, here's our image and here's who all the customers are that we have. But actually that just even being on Clubhouse in and of itself are are like only iPhone only products often leaves out an entire demographic of people. When you think even in the U.S., I think like 50 something percent of people are still Android users. Right. And then you think globally, like Android actually has like a ridiculous market share of like, you know, way more than Apple globally. So it's just where you're also thinking about like the equity perspective and like inclusion. I often think about that as well. Like even at the outset, you're already kind of narrowing the lens a little bit. And I get some of that as kind of like developmental challenges, but given all the success, when I remember reading this article about, you know, Clubhouse and what they're worth, I'm like, wow, with all of that, like it would seem like for me, the next step would be like, all right, now invest in like invest in the development of like another, like the Android app in order to really like see us reach a broad, that, that community, right? Like a broader community of which some of the people who help shape the core experience, like are a representative sample of, but we could probably get so much more from this broader community. 
Yes. I, I wish I had a lot of snap effects going right now. I, I agree with that, obviously. So thank you. So we're getting to the end of the show where we finish up with reflections. So the thing that, I mean, there's so many things in the show. I've been thinking about this idea of, you know, what it means to center around core values and community and what type of communities we want to build and everything that follows from those core values, and especially this idea of centering around empowerment. I feel like that makes a lot of sense, centering around empowerment. If our goal in building these spaces is to empower people, then what are all the systems and policies and things that follow with that goal of empowerment in mind? How do we raise and lift up people and create supportive spaces that do that? And I think back to one of the things you said at the beginning around authenticity and the ability to, or this conversation that you had where I think it was your, your manager, Corey, that, you know, asked you, how are you? Which is normally this plain old question that you just reply with, oh, good. You know, there's an expectation that, that it's almost rhetorical, like we're just moving on and, you know, kind of touching base and not really saying anything of, of substance. But there's something fundamentally different there with, no, how are you? Mm-hmm. And it's not about the words you're saying. It's about the intention to actually listen, the intention of giving someone the space to let their guard down, to be their authentic self, to tell you what's real. And with this goal of empowerment, I feel like that's, that's another aspect that's really important is being able to create spaces where we can drop our guard and be real. We can say what's really going on. In order to learn, you know, we got to be able to be ourselves too. And, you know, I feel like there's a a lesson in the small in that in of of something that we can all make an effort to do when we interact with people to really ask them, how are you really doing? You know, what's really going on? And as opposed to trying to fix it, to change anything, to just listen, to really listen to what's going on with them, to finding those commonalities of oh, I guess we all just want to be safe. Seeing those things that are the same as opposed to trying to you know, fix or change someone else, just focusing on listening and hearing where they're coming from. And I feel like if we, if we move toward those combination of things with that intention, with that goal in mind, with that being our why, that how we design the technology, how we design the policies that follow from that, will help move us in the right direction. For me, I'm thinking a lot about this empathy piece because it makes me sort of pause and say, you know, I, while I prioritize it, I value it. I just don't know how many people, how many hiring managers out there are actually looking for and building empathy into one of their core values that they're, you know, prioritizing on their hiring rubric. Um, But as we kind of move to this, you know, this next kind of fourth industrial revolution, right. Where we're, automating and people are losing their jobs, we can't outsource empathy. So it's something that we definitely need to make sure we are, um, you know, working on individually. And if you have children, I hope that people are thinking about ways that they can sort of cultivate that early and young and teachers and educators, and especially folks who want to be a, a, you know, a founder, or they want to be an investor. I think 
this is something that takes a community effort. And I want to hear more people talking about empathy. So I'm really happy, Corey, that that's one of the core things you're focusing on with your strategy and your uh, consulting firm. So really looking forward to kind of connecting with you after this about that, because I think let's celebrate it and make sure that we get more people knowing who you are so that so we can see a better future. Thank you. No, I appreciate you saying that. And absolutely. I was looking at your background as well and also just greater than code. I just thought, wow, this is a great model. Generally, this idea of voice, because really that's what I connected to when I saw the podcast, this idea of we all have a story and oftentimes either because on a micro level, on a day-to-day, we're not asked to share our story or like in the broader society or the broader infrastructure of whatever it is, tech, technology, we're not invited to share our story in a way that others are. I think it's just so important to have vehicles like this podcast. Like Again, I saw your work as well. So I hope to continue to be involved in, in whatever way I can and also support in whatever way I can. I think there's been so much that's come up today that's like iterative, which is also why I love these conversations because I feel like I literally want to go back through and dissect some of these these points. But the one thing that really is still very like top of mind for me is this idea uh, that came up where we talked about how the model of technology has shifted away from like interest based almost to this like follower base. I think already it was something that you said, uh, the idea that now we're focused on following, influencing and, you know, how that shifts the conversation. And it's something that I had not really thought about until this call, but I think it's like a very important thing to think about. Again, we talked about Clubhouse, but I think one of the reasons why Clubhouse may have taken off was because it really seems like it centers the idea of like just join a room and just come together around an interest. And that is enough. And I think that that idea, however, the model ultimately works, like maybe that's a sign that people have an appetite for really finding that type of space again. And maybe that means that virality is not it might be entertaining and there's going to be echoes of it, but maybe that's where we're we're shifting or we need to be thinking about shifting. Maybe if we're companies proactively trying to do more when it comes to helping stories be told or helping to empower people, maybe that's something that we're thinking about or that we're investing in more as technologists on the call, but also as people who use technology and consume technology. So that really stood out to me. And it's something I really want to think about more. Those are great reflections. Thank you so much. That was such a good note to end on. Corey, it's been a pleasure to have you on our show. Let's make sure that we definitely stay connected. Yeah, absolutely. It has been an absolute pleasure. I'm excited about this. And also, thank you for giving me a reason to talk about superpowers and superheroes at different points throughout the show. So 